Welcome to the Climactic Collective. I'm your host for today's episode, the publisher of the Climactic Collective Podcast Network. I am Mark Spencer. What you're listening to today is an episode of the Climactic Curation. This is our monthly audio magazine show, or will be monthly in the new year. Uh, we've failed. This is our first Climactic Curation edition, straight off the bat, uh, since September of 2020, but um, you all don't need to hear anything about the big year it's been. Um, So here we are, we're starting off uh, with a February Climactic Curation Edition, the SLF version. So for those of you who maybe are tuning in without realizing that this event is in part because of uh, the Sustainable Living Festival, um, what SLF is, it's a month-long program of events that is, in this case, in this year, running um, not only in person, there is a lot of in-person events going on, there's even more um, virtual events, of course, happening, which which we can expect. Um, it's a weird SLF this year. <laughs> um, I wish I was in front of you at a stage right now. I wish we were, like, you know, able to, to catch up after this and, and have a beer and talk about sustainability and climate stuff. I really, really do. But um, we're kind of used to this by now. Um, SLF 2019 was the last one that was properly in person with the big weekend, which takes over Birrung Mar on the the banks of the Yarra River in Melbourne. Uh, It was the first SLF I got to be a part of. Um, 2020 was a year of disruption as well um, because of the bushfires. Um, There was, instead of the normal program, there was the, um, the Climate Emergency Summit uh, which all the sessions of which you can listen to as a podcast on Climactic, which is great. And of course, this year, this this weird, weird year. But I got to say, thank you so much for tuning in because I spend a lot of my day in front of my computer like this and I never feel this kind of connection and, um, and solidarity with people. So I, I really appreciate that I'm going to do this with you now and um, we're going to get to talk to some great people. Over the, in the course of this hour, we're going to play some great stuff. And uh, at any minute, uh, something special might happen. I'm going to get a phone call, and um, you're going to be part of something that's part of radio history, something I don't think it's ever been done before, uh, especially not been done in Australia and not done recently. There's a crazy man doing a crazy thing over in Sydney, and yes, you'll all get to be part of it. I'm just going to let our first guest know that uh, we're going to call him in here in just a couple minutes. But to get started, um, I want to acknowledge that I'm personally on the lands of the Bunrung people of the Kulin Nations. Um, I want to acknowledge that this land was never ceded, that this land was stolen, that I didn't ask for and I didn't get permission to be here today as someone who's been in Australia for only a few years. And um, as people who've been here for a lot longer than that, for multiple generations, they didn't get permission or exactly buy the land either, so... That unpleasantness kind of up front and out of the way, not out of the way at all. Um, 
it's much easier, I guess, to talk about acknowledgments of country when you are all in the same place with yourself, your audience, everything like that. But um, I've got a little thing here to play you. I'm just a little scared of this. Uh, <laughs> never been like recording and like doing stuff on the fly. So you're kind of seeing something happen here. Good, that works. All right. Um, just north of me, where, where I'm based, is a place called Stonington City Council. And uh, for those of you who are outside of Melbourne or maybe inside Melbourne, this is where uh, Pran is located, you know, the Chapel Street shopping strip and everything. Um, that city council has done a pretty great job of this, this video, uh, which I've, I've ripped and I've got the audio for you now. And let's have a little listen to their National Reconciliation Week video from uh, last year. The city of Stonington acknowledges that we are on the traditional land of the Bunuru and Wurundjeri people and offer our respects to their elders past and present. We recognize and respect the cultural heritage of this land. We, the members of Reconciliation Stonington, acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional country of the Boonwurrung and the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation and that, that they have never ceded their sovereignty. We pay our respects to the wisdom of the Elders, both past and present, and their living cultures which continue today. We acknowledge that meetings and ceremonies have taken place on this land for many thousands of years, and we thank the ancestors for their custodianship. It goes on from there, the little kids tuning in. It's a really, really cute video, actually. Uh, so thank you very much, City of Stonington, for, uh, for making that video. And, um, well, you didn't know, but I, I grabbed the audio of it. So what is this, uh, this climactic collective business? Uh, who, what, what's that all about? So um, I'm wearing a shirt I should know. Uh, about three and a bit years ago now, I started a little show called Climactic, which was basically a way for me to talk to other people about climate change. I was um, in sales. I was working a very kind of normal job with a normal life, uh, but always had like background climate anxiety. I went looking for podcasts because I'm just a huge podcast listener um, that helped me kind of ground myself a bit and, and overcome some of the, honestly, like the, the nightmares and the, the anxiety that was trying to eat me up about climate. And I I didn't really know, yeah, who, where to turn. And I, I found there was an empty space. So I, I tried my best to fill it. And then here we are three years on and one show has turned into a network of, of over 20 shows with many other people as well making climate-engaged content. And uh, the Climactic name has sort of started to become something bigger, and that is the Climactic Collective, which is a, a proper podcast network. And what do proper podcast networks have? They have a mission statement. They're able to talk about themselves and describe themselves. And I'm happy to say I've got for you now Climactic's mission statement but not in my words, in their words. These are climactic times. 
with overlapping crises of climate, biodiversity, inequality and colonialism. Public conversation in Australia on climate is on mute. And the Climactic Collective provides a platform to those engaging with the climate conversation. We're a collective of independent creators in groups or as part of social enterprise whose collective collective structure structure raises raises each each other up because we can only face these challenges challenges together. Hello, Mark speaking. Very good, Tom. Yep, that'd be perfect, actually. Nope, nope, I'm clear on the rules. Thank you, Tom. Perfect. Okay, folks, what's happening here now is uh, you're part of radio history. You're about to find out why and what this is all about. I'm going to have to be holding up my phone kind of close to the mic here. And um, Michael Hilliard, our guest, if uh, if you can hear me now, uh, it's going to be 10 minutes from this point that I bring you on. <laughs> Sounds like it's busy at the pass. All right, guys, until until he joins us, I'll quickly tell you what's going on. There's a man, some say a myth, some say a legend, called Mike Williams. And uh, Mike's over there in Sydney and has done all things audio for many years now. I'm making him sound ancient. I don't think he's that old of a guy, but he's just done a lot. And uh, Mike's doing a couple interviews today. He's, he's doing 100 interviews. He's doing 100 interviews in 24 hours. Sorry, I'm introducing you. <laughs> Go for it, Mike. Hello. Uh, I, I already called you the man, the myth, the legend. I uh, said you were doing a few interviews today. I thought, you know, maybe a couple dozen. I, I hear it's bigger than that. We're, anyways, we're not talking about the project. You're here to interview me. Okay, so we're, we're going to hit Mark. So, yeah, we're here. Dulwich Hill, 100 interviews, 24 hours. You're number 34, I believe. Okay. So we've got a fair few to go. And, 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 and tell me what you're doing on your end. You're, you're screaming. Yeah, so I'm doing um, a, so at this time of year, there's a thing called the Sustainable Living Festival, the the National Sustainable Living Festival, and it's in its 22nd year this year, Um, and normally I'd be, you know, in in a bar with a theater, uh, you know, giving some live, live episode of a climate podcast, but instead I'm at home streaming it. Yeah, so, so my one's pretty easy. Well, I've had to learn a lot of stuff in the last couple of days. I've never streamed before. I've never done a lot of this stuff before. But I'm basically um, playing DJ over some clips from other podcasts in my little podcast network I help organize. So I'm not sure if you've ever heard shows like Sampler. There's, there's a lot out there of like, you know, podcasts of bits of other podcasts. And that's what I'm basically uh, assembling now. But for the first time, I'm doing it live. So I've got some clips, and I'm introducing them. Uh, I've got a couple guests coming on. And um, you're kind of the intro to all of this. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Well, look, that's super exciting, man. Like, you're, you're figuring it all out and streaming stuff. I'm trying to figure it all out here online as well. So I want to thank you for, for sticking with me as we work it out. You're very, very welcome. It's given me great solace and comfort to watch you over the last couple hours on your live stream and me knowing that I don't have nearly as many plates spinning as you do. And if you can do it, then I might be okay. And you've done very well. Thanks, man. If, you can, if I can do it, you can definitely do it. Trust me. Trust me about it. No, seriously, trust me. Um, you've got to give it a go, man, and you're doing that too. So let's talk about... Uh, Recently, uh, within the climate group, to get Apple to, to do something. 
Yeah, yeah, perfect. So um, we launched on Monday, the 15th of February, a campaign that, um, like, honestly, this is the culmination of something I've wanted to do for three years now. So it's a good tenth of my life I've been thinking about this, and then this week it happened. Um, it's a very boring thing. It's all about libraries and categories and, like, asking Apple to be a good librarian of podcasting. But um, that essentially, right now, if I want to go find a climate podcast, there's no label for climate. Uh, so it's very hard to find climate shows. Um, the reason why I wanted to do this for three years is because three years ago, Apple added true crime, fiction, and history to their directory. And they didn't add a climate at the time. Um, so we've got all the people together. We've built an amazing website. We've got an amazing illustrator really helping convey how, how this is a very simple problem and that Apple could fix it very, very easily. And if Apple fix it, well, then probably every other podcast app will take it up as well. And that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're, we're four days in and we're about to cross 100 podcasts that have signed. Yeah, we've seen it with true crime, right? Like, if, if true crime had never become a category, would would everyone and their dog know about true crime? And every podcast would be making a true crime show. Like, you gotta you gotta name the space before it can thrive. And um, I really think that if climate gets a category, we'll see a thousand flowers bloom. And um, yeah, three years ago, I couldn't find a climate podcast to save my life, and and now there's dozens, hundreds, thousands. You know, if if we get this done in a year's time, there could be just amazing talent out there making climate-engaged podcasts. And, of course, all the climate shows would then be in the awards shows. We'd have rankings for it. It would just really um, just bring climate into the fold rather than being like the weird stepchild over there on the side. Uh, no, we haven't addressed. We, well, we we have we. There's been some conversations, kind of directly with individuals behind closed doors. There hasn't been an official ask to Apple, but I now know that in the last four days since we launched the campaign, that this is now being this has been seen at Cupertino. That Apple has, you know, it, it's on the radar now. So if nothing else, that's now happening. Yeah. This to me is a I think so. Mike, it's been it's yeah. great to talk to you, and it's also so great to have you as a signer, a signatory on our open letter. Uh, I'm just showing on the live stream that uh, Mike Williams and Friends is up here, up at the top, next to a bird's eye view, an amazing award winner, um, up here with some other amazing climate podcasts. It's, it's a great um, encouragement to the team that you signed so early and so uh, you know, strongly. 
and thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Couldn't be easier. It's podcastersdeclare.com. Thank you, Mike. I hope you get some food soon. Catch ya. Take care, brother. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, folks. Sorry for the bad audio there. Um, I, <laughs> The man's doing, yeah, 100 interviews in 24 hours. So I was hoping that he'd do the Facebook call instead and would be better quality. But here we are. That's done. That's out of the way. That's like the big disruption part out of the way. So let's bring on a guest. I'm going to give him a minute's warning here. Uh, Michael Hilliard is going to jump on the live stream with me in very good audio quality and crystal clear HD video. And what we're going to be talking about is his podcast, The Red Line. Now, before I do that, I, I sorry about the uh, jumping around here a little bit, but I was talking about the National Sustainable Living Festival, which is what many of you may be here joining us for because of. This show, Curations, is generally on a theme, and uh, I kind of have one ready to go. So the themes we're talking about today are <clears throat> emergency lessons. What does the current pandemic emergency tell us about how we can face the climate and biodiversity crisis? What lessons from this unprecedented response can be applied to our advocacy and action? So all about how bad is it now and, and how bad... Can it get in future, is what I interpreted from that. And the exact right man to tell us about this is Michael Hilliard. So, Michael, I'm going to give you a call right now. Michael's one of these people that I'm not sure how I'm lucky enough to be his friend, but he... Oh, no. <laughs> no answer. I'm going to try that again. There's, a, there's definitely an element of being up on the stage and anything can go wrong. Oh, no. He's trying to call me. I'm trying to call him. There we go. Ha <laughs> ha! We did it. Welcome, welcome. I gotta put my headphones back in because that's where my audio is routed. Nothing like having a phone call right at the start to really dis derail the plans here. Okay, there we go. Michael is up here. People can now see Michael. There we go. We've got your lovely website in the background as well. So, um, Michael is the host of the Red Line. The Red Line is. A podcast based out of Australia that takes a look into the biggest issues shaping the news around the world. Each week, they have three expert guests on the show, ranging from CIA operatives to Harvard professors, to give you expert and first-hand information. The show is designed to be a 45-minute crash course that will teach you everything you need to know about the topic, including a great deal not covered by the mainstream media outlets. Um, I'd say you succeed in everything about that, Michael, except the 45-minute limit. Um, I think it's fair to say. Unfortunately, this audio wasn't recorded into my digital audio workstation on the night, but you can hear the interview with Michael over at Climactic's Facebook page, and just check out the video from the night to hear the chat with Michael. Uh, I got a lot of rave reviews. People seem to really enjoy it, so I'd highly recommend going to check that out if you didn't catch the event live. 
Thank you so much for that. I hope the uh, sound is coming through well for you. I really do have some happier topics now to talk about. Uh, going on to the next kind of pillar of the SLF agenda for 2021, we're talking about um, we're talking about culture of care. Yes, we are. Culture of care. I should add slides for this. Um, another one of the main pillars of SLF is all about what do we really want to sustain. Uh, how do we express our relationship with what we want to protect? What scale and speed of action is essential to save and secure what we care about? Essentially, this is how I kind of answered this question, is like, what if we went vegan? And one of our shows, uh, Nourishing Matters to Chew On, as soon as I can find it here in our lovely collage of podcasts on the network, Nourishing Matters to Chew On from... Anthea Fawcett, who runs an amazing group called Food Swell, spoke to Professor, Professor Robin Alders and Matthew Evans uh, for a two-part series. You can see Uneating Meat Part 1, Uneating Meat Part 2. I've got a clip here of Not Eating Meat Part 1, and let's hear that now. It's, it's not the cow, it's the how. So you can't, you can't blame the ruminant, you can't blame the goat, the sheep, or, or the cow. Um, for you know, methane emissions and and you know, inappropriate water use and uh, you know using up arable land you know, land that grows grain to get growing things that should have gone to um, uh, to into human mouths to go into animal mouths um, it's not the animal's fault it's 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 the system's fault and it's farming's fault that that's started to happen. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On a podcast that takes its cue from big-picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. In his excellent book on eating meat, the truth about its production and the ethics of eating it, Matthew Evans explores a myriad of issues about the ways we produce and consume animals – and offers far-sighted insights and calls for greater industry transparency and for more robust understanding by omnivores, vegans and vegetarians alike about how our food is produced and what dies in our name so we can all eat. In this episode, the first of two on eating meat, in which I speak with Matthew and Professor Robin Alders, we talk about the benefits and challenges that meat offers to us as omnivores, to the health of our landscapes, biodiversity and food systems. The second episode then digs into some of the joys and benefits of trying to think, produce and eat small and of knowing where your food comes from. The need to re dramatically reduce food waste and the overconsumption of meat, particularly red meat, is really well recognised in healthy and sustainable food agendas. Climate change, untenable land use and land clearing rates and biodiversity loss are all part of the picture. 
And increasingly, more and more people are moving toward more flexitarian diets, that is ones that are less meat, more fruit and veg, for economic, health and environmental reasons. So how can we better understand some of the curly issues around meat, the implications of the choices we have, and how can we support producers who are leading the way in more sustainable, humane production? It's a real pleasure to be speaking with Robin and Matthew, who each know a lot about animals, food and landscapes as they are both farmers and researchers. Robin is an eminent Australian veterinarian whose research focuses on sustainable food and nutrition security in both Australia and globally. Widely published, her recent publications include Health Before Medicine, Community Resilience in Food Landscapes, and that chapter appears in the book One Health, One Planet. Her affiliations are many. Robin is a Senior Consulting Fellow with the Chatham House Global Health Program, an Honorary Professor with ANU's Development Policy Centre and with Tufts University. And she's also Chair of the Kaima Foundation and of the Upper Lachlan Branch of the New South Wales Farmers Association. Matthew is a former food critic, now farmer, restaurateur, writer and co-steward of Fat Pig Farm in beautiful Tasmania. You may know of him as the host of the popular SBS TV series, Gourmet Farmer, knowledge from which he has now further researched and shares in his great book on eating meat. Matthew, can I ask you to read from your book to help set the scene, and then I'll ask each of you to briefly describe one or two particular problems or issues about what's done in our name so we can eat meat that we all really need to know a bit more about. Over to you, Matthew. Uh, thanks, Anthea. Um, so uh, this is from uh, early on in, in my book. Um, I don't see meat as a commodity. I see it as a privilege, as an indulgence. This, then, is my ode to farming animals and eating animals. I think meat eaters need to confront the reality that something dies in their name and that they should be comfortable with the way that it's done. But I also think that non-meat eaters need to reconcile the fact that more suffering happens outside the farm gate than inside and that more death can be wrought on animals by the growing of grain and vegetables than the production of livestock for meat. Thanks so much, Matthew. It's such a powerful book. Robin, how does that resonate with you? Resonates um, um, intimately, I think. I was born and raised on a farm. Um, I'm the youngest of four children. There was a bit of a gap, so I, I did tend to spend a lot of time with animals <laughs> rather than my older siblings and uh, and so um, you had to face that um, we, we were raised at a time when we uh, killed our own our own meat for home consumption and and uh, there were times when yes you had to absolutely confront that the one thing was we knew everything about how that animal had been raised we knew everything about how that animal had been killed and and its life up to that point and that sort of sets my my experience apart from from many others. Yeah, so I've got this annoying saying that I probably wouldn't be able to follow through on if uh, challenged. But I always feel if if I wasn't willing to kill this animal, maybe I shouldn't be able to eat it. And whenever I am eating meat, I'm like, well, you know, is is this thing I'm eating worth the act of? Well, all the industrial processes on the one hand, but on the other, the very human act or the, well, is it human? The the act of having to kill that animal. Um, and I've, you know, I've heard various anecdotal things from podcasts and the rest about um, just the kind of 
like what the the abattoir system and what the butchering system is like and, and you know counselors who talk to people who've worked in the meatpacking industry for decades it's it's got to be hard like if if i had a, if i had a friend like imagine okay here's a thought experiment you've got a friend and you've been their friend for 10 years and um you know you haven't really spent much time with their family and then you're at their house late one night and their dad says hey i'll drive you home it's late it's dark out and then you find out that they're a butcher <laughs> would you feel differently about this this man you don't really know like yes he's the father of your friend but you don't really know him that well and he kills things and butchers their flesh for a living i don't know i'd i'd feel i'd i don't know <laughs> um it's a wonderful two-part episode i highly recommend it just again here to put it up on the screen you can get that from climactic.com.au slash show slash nourishing matters to chew on or just find it in the mosaic of programs um the whole nourishing matters to chew on series is lovely uh, the work anthony is doing with food swell is fantastic um so like let's let's get educated around like you know what would it mean if we all went vegan and let's you know like kind of as they're saying like let's go for the low-hanging fruit like get everyone if you get everyone you know to eat less meat it's huge absolutely huge all right, what's coming up next is we're talking about Reboot and Respond. How can we address the climate emergency and long-term sustainability in the post-pandemic reboot? What's the current reality we now face? And what level of response do we need to protect people and the planet? And what are the associated employment, economic, and social opportunities at this pivotal time? Reboot and Respond. They do have very big themes uh, this year at SLF, uh, but I've got just the right clip for you to talk about it. Uh, it's from the Overview Effect podcast. This is the work of one James Perrin. James, um, God, I, 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 a lot like a lot of the people with Climactic, I haven't met them in person yet, and I've been working f for years with some of them. Um, James is one of these people that when I do get the chance to meet him in person, I'm just going to have to ask him, like, are you sure you know me? Are you sure we're friends? Because you're way too cool. Um, James is the head of sustainability for Stone and Wood, which is an independent craft brewery from the Byron Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. It's one of my favorite craft breweries. I'm a craft brew tragic, and I'm just like gobsmacked that a for former brewer turned sustainability manager for Stone and Wood, the first brewery to become a B Corp, um, you know, answered my message on Instagram when I said, hey, I like your podcast, and then said yes to being part of Climactic. But here we are. Um, this episode with Catherine Ingram, some of you may know her, I didn't before, but she's a, a pretty famous journalist and she's a meditation teacher. And so this, the topic Reboot and Respond is all about facing reality, right? Like what, what is the reality? Um, James says it himself, you know, this, this, this gets heavy, this episode. So hopefully I've kind of broken it up a little bit. The last thing we have for you, we're going to go slightly over eight o'clock, sorry, um, the last thing we have for you is quite short, but it is from the Sustainable You podcast. It's super empowering. You're going to leave, if you can stick around to the end, feeling empowered and feeling good. Um, but I'm going to put that up back up in just a second, but let's actually start the clip. Okay, to today's episode. Today's episode is not for the faint-hearted. My guest today is a renowned meditation practitioner, author, and Dharma teacher, and she has spent a lifetime specializing in the issues of consciousness and activism. 
As a former journalist, she's travelled the world interviewing everyone, including Ram Das and the Dalai Lama, twice, mind you. She's authored books, including In the Footsteps of Gandhi and Passionate Presence. And for decades, she's organised and led meditation and silent retreats and her Dharma dialogues, which are public events focusing on awareness of one's personal life, are hugely popular and influential. She also has her own podcast called In the Deep, which I highly, highly recommend. But about two years ago, she penned an essay called Facing Extinction, which has been downloaded and read over a million times. Now, a 15,000-word online essay doesn't usually go viral like that. And so that speaks to how profound this essay is. And it is this essay which is largely the conversation, the topic of conversation in our episode today. The essay is a reflection of where we find ourselves as humanity in the current state of the world with the climate crisis, ongoing environmental degradation, and our societal unrest, distraction, and denial. It's heavy, and it goes into detail the challenges we face as species. There's a consciousness shift when we reflect on our own mortality. Just like someone lying on their deathbed, it crystallizes the important things in life. In her essay, she describes not what we must do, but how we can be. In this conversation, we talk about getting to a stage of acceptance and how acceptance is a truly radical act in today's world. In a world that wants us to fight with everything, where arguments, divisiveness, different data points of proof, it's, it's rife. Acceptance is a shift in energy. It's moving us to a place of not fighting with everything all the time. It can help us get to a place of being grateful and enjoying being here, being present, just because we are. But it doesn't come without grief, of which there is a lot in this conversation. So with that, I ask that you lay down your arguments, lay down your preconceived ideas and beliefs for this one, and open your mind and your heart to the wisdom of Catherine Ingram. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for having me in your beautiful home here in Lennox on a beautiful afternoon. Mm, It's a pleasure. (laughs) Having peppermint tea. Having peppermint tea in a beautiful, sunny, light environment. Where else would you rather be? (laughs) Can I just jump in here? Yes, yeah, please. We do see that especially in cases where there's still resources, where Mm. some people have resources they can share, and out of the goodness of their heart and their general empathy, they're happy to share and perhaps have less momentarily. What will be interesting is to see when the pressures are such that there is nothing extra to share. Um, And we unfortunately have a lot of examples historically and even on earth right now uh, to see what happens in full collapse of resources and that gets pretty bad Mm. so 
I would also say, in reference to this, you're right that in times of stress, some people turn to, uh, you know, the, the better angels of our, of our nature. That's, that comes forth for them. I'd say it's a minority. Mm-hmm. I would say it's a smaller number. Um, so that's a problem. Mm. And I think we can see that on the world stage quite clearly. You know, that there are many people waking up to the cl- climate crisis, many people, but the, but the majority of people and those in power, <clears throat> those in power are racing full steam ahead yeah. into oblivion. You know, I just saw Pompeo, one of the American politicians, gleefully, I mean, he might as well have been rubbing his hands together, telling some, you know, Davos-type group of people how many resources they're now going to be able to get at up in the Arctic due to the melting ice. Not just the oil, but all the other minerals and everything else. And he he was basically speaking about it as though it's going to be this incredible bonanza of wealth. And and probably most of the people, I saw this on national television of the U.S., on CNN, and probably most of the people watching are all thinking, fantastic, right? Mm. So I just don't have any sense that there's going to be some wave of awakened consciousness or that the people who see clearly uh, our predicament are going to have much influence. Little bits, but mm. nothing much. Mm. Not, not to turn the tide. And even if, even if tomorrow everyone in the world wakes up and says, let's stop putting one more molecule of carbon into the atmosphere. We're on track for a lot of warming coming up. Mm. A lot of heat is already baked in. Um, This past November, this November that just was, is the hottest on record worldwide. The new data is showing, this is interesting, the new data is showing a 1.4 degrees centigrade rise from 1981. Wow. A lot of the data is so old. It gets out of data so quickly. But, you know, all of the big, you know, climate conferences are all about trying to hold the line. And we're only at one C up above pre-industrial, which first they were counting as 1750. Then they moved up to 18 something or other, early 1800s. Because yeah. each time you move it up, you can lower the number that you're above. Yes. Understand? Yes. So now it's up to 1981 and it's 1.4 up as, wow. of last, as of this past month. And 2020 is on track to be the hottest year uh, on record, even though it's La Nina and it should be cooler. Mm. We should have had a dip. We're not getting that dip. So, okay. I'm saying, and many, many, many people are looking at this data, that even if we stopped all emissions, lots of the warming is now being produced by other greenhouse gases. Yeah. Methane being one of them, but several others that are horrific. Um, Nitrous oxide, SF6 is another one. It's twenty. I think it's twenty three thousand five hundred times more potent potent. than carbon. So, um, as the warming continues and it seems to be going exponential, there will be 
a much less ability to f- feed a population that's going to be 8 billion fairly soon. Yeah. And there's going to be some fighting. Yeah. And so all of these things combine to make it highly unlikely, no matter how hip you become, how kind you are, how sharing we could go all into a sharing economy in our local area and so on, that would be great. And that might, as Jim Bandel describes from a conversation he's had with a pilot, that might extend the glide. So this pilot tells him that one of the things they're trained to do in a plane is to, if they lose engines or an engine, to try to extend the glide mm. so that you can maybe find a nice place to land or maybe try to get the engine going. Or if all that fails, you can make some peace with what's about to happen. Right. So wow. we could, in our local ways, in our local behaviors, and in our, our raising of our own ethical stance, extend the glide a bit. That's where I see the work is at the moment. I think it's the last work we have is to extend the glide mm. and to try to mitigate as best we can. And I feel lucky to be in this country uh, because I think there's a better chance for us as a country to do some of that. Mm. So what do you think, what would you say that looks like on a, on a personal level? So for someone who maybe is is still coming to terms with all this is is um they shouldn't listen to, to they shouldn't listen to this podcast first of all uh, yeah i mean this particular one maybe some yes. of your others yes. but but this is but this is what you this is what you teach this is around um acceptance and how people can can be i mean there's that beautiful quote that you you have in your essay that says on the last day of the world i would plant a tree i would want to plant a tree yeah yeah yeah, W.S. Merwin. So what would you... It's a beautiful, beautiful um, sentiment there. You know, that is... I, I hope I could say the same, that it, on my on my last day, on my last day on Earth, or, you know, on the last day of Earth, that I would plant a tree. I don't know. Um, this particular episode is very different from anything else of James's. Uh, you can hear he's very good at leaving space for his guests, and... He records, um, all of his episodes so far have been in person. He sits at a table with someone. He's had such an amazing diversity of guests. I mean, if you want to hear the the former, like, I forget the, the insurance company he's like the CEO of, but the one of the former big wig execs at NAB Bank, Mark Joyner, if you want to hear him talk about his role within capitalism and how he looks his grandchildren in the eye and how he does what he can from the boardroom for his grandchildren, Oh, James James knocks it out of the park. Um, please check out the overview effect. It's it's amazing. If that was a bit heavy for you, I understand completely. And yeah, know that all the rest of his episodes will make you feel good. Um, this episode, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh God, good. James is getting exposed to my mindset because <laughs> this is where I live. <laughs> that, that kind of, um, sure, um, I heard it really well, well put the other day. It was, you know, like the, the optimism of the spirit, but the pessimism of the mind, like you, you hope things are going to be okay, but you, you, you're, everything is telling you to plan for the worst. So there we are. 
Um, but here's to doing things within our local area and making a change and doing something good. Um, Jackie, thank you so much for listening. I know you are. I'm going to play a pretty decent chunk here of your chat. Um, I'm just going to just get right into it. And we're going to play some video footage of some spider crabs thronging in Port Phillip Bay. It'll be fun. All right. Welcome to the Sustainable You podcast with your hosts, Jackie Kidman and Lisa Wisdom. Self-proclaimed urban hippies, waste warriors, and passionate women. Tune in for practical information and inspiration on how to reduce your impact on the environment and become a more sustainable you. Before we begin, Lisa and Jackie would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and the places on which we record our podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to this week's episode of Sustainable You Podcast. This week I have um, a guest that I met through uh, the Climate Reality Leadership course uh, a little, I don't know how long ago that was, maybe it was two months ago. Um, Mandy and I participated in the Climate Reality Leadership training with Al Gore and I met some amazing, very talented Hang on, I've just got a rubbish truck coming past my house. Just hang on a sec. Sorry. <laughs> it's just um, it's bin day. It's bin day. Um, bin day. Bin day. There we go. I think that's it. Okay. So, in the group that I was in, it was pretty amazing. We had some amazing um people doing some some phenomenal things in the sustainability sort of area. Um, I felt very overwhelmed and also very, um, very grateful to be um, as part of that group and, and um, help me to continue to learn. I thought one way to be able to pay it forward in that group is to share some of the stories of some of these leaders. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, yeah, look, I just watched David Attenborough's a life on our planet last weekend which is an awesome film and it really just brought home to me what we're trying to do here uh, you know we're losing so much of our biodiversity and our natural wonders so it, it reinforced that you know we're on the right track um so we're very lucky here i live down on the mornington peninsula and every year Around the first full moon in winter, which is, you know, late May, early June, depending, uh, the spider crabs start to aggregate. Now, they're generally in the bay somewhere, but really scattered wide. But they come into these huge aggregations in quite a few different locations to give them protection, to give them safety and numbers, because they're about to undergo something that's pretty important in their life cycle and makes them incredibly vulnerable, and that's molting. So shedding their old shell and then coming out with a, a brand new soft form shell that increases their size, sometimes 30%, and then harden, and then they can go back to whatever they're doing the rest of the time. Um, and this has been going on and has been really celebrated by lots of enthusiasts, people in the water and on the piers um, for many years. Um, but I 
couple of years ago, it got, caught the attention of um, a group of people who like to harvest the crabs. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But it turned into a bit of a just a crazy, chaotic time. So 2019, the crabs actually came to Blagari Pier. And I went in the water at the beginning of the aggregation. And it's just a carpet of crabs. It's pretty amazing. They're all clambering over each other. And they're trying to get away from the stingrays that come to feed on them. And they're climbing up the, the pylons of the pier. And it's just a really amazing um, thing to see. And then I went back a week later with a friend. And they're pretty much all gone. There was a few up the, the side, but the floor was empty. And you'd know if that was because they'd left or after a successful molt because there'd just be thousands of shells everywhere. But that wasn't the case. There were not many shells and the crabs had gone. So, And we had seen people coming down the pier with nets. And so we sort of put two and two together and said, oh, this is just, this is not right. So um, Spider Crab Alliance was uh, formed and I joined probably about a month or so afterwards and a petition was set up on change.org to just to get all of those people that know about this phenomenon, have come and, and, and witnessed it and, and often come from both interstate and international. And of course, it was featured on David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2 series, um, sort of that following year it was filmed during the Blair Gowrie aggregation a couple of years ago and we actually saw the guys filming um one day um and it just we needed to make a difference so we set up this petition please let's have a no take um particularly around this time we got at the time we got nearly 20,000 signatures that year so you know a really big groundswell of opinion and we started to meet with um, VFA, the Victorian Fisheries Authority, to try and get a solution because we really knew and feared that 2020 would be not only a repeat, but an increase. As more word gets out, particularly on social media, um, it's one of those double-edged swords social media. It can do really good things, but it can really draw attention to things that you don't want on the radar um and we we just we just knew if nothing changed we knew that 2020 wasn't going to be the best year um and then coming into 2020 of course covid hit so that kind of put a lot of the breaks on negotiations and but also kept people away so we were sort of hopeful that we might just squeeze through the season unfortunately the season, the really key bit of the season, coincided just too perfectly with the long weekend of the Queen's birthday. Mm. COVID restrictions eased. They moved this year to Rye Pier, um, the, the, the sort of ones that you can access. Um, and everyone was allowed out and everyone was just desperate to be out. And it was a beautiful weekend. And the word had really got out and lots more people. We had a much bigger um increase in the number of people harvesting the crabs um and it was a disaster to be honest there was a lot of damage done through this practice because 
a lot of the nets dragged up the pier pylons, which rips off a lot of the habitat, the sponges. We've even got pictures of seahorses in, you know, these nets and sort of people who are underwater who were taking these pictures sort of managed to get them out. Um, so you're talking about habitat for lots of different, you know, invertebrates that live under there. Um, nets were landing on divers because it was a pretty busy year for people snorkeling and diving in the water. Rye Pier is a lot more accessible than Blair Gary Pier and there's a lot more space, so it just lends itself better. The bait that's used in the nets are generally chicken carcasses, which are attached with cable ties, and we found lots of those discarded, so discarded nets, discarded cable ties, and at one point up to 80 chicken carcasses were cleaned up by some of the divers. Add to that the litter on the pier, around the car park. I mean, I've got pictures of overflowing bins one night in the middle of the weekend. And they also got word of other sort of aggregation locations that we kept quite secret. And they were coming and finding those and, you know, telling their friends to come. And some of them were not doing the right thing. Most were. We have to be really clear about this, that the rules do allow spider crab harvesting. And most people were doing the right thing in terms of numbers and compliance, but some were collecting in the shallows, so we reported that. Mm. It's something that we've always acknowledged, that yes, there are plenty of them, but most of them are inaccessible for people, and, and, and hence why they're accessible for harvesters. It's the only way that the whole community can enjoy this event. And for me, losing that aggregation during the season is enough of a reason to want to stop it. Even if you take out the environmental damage, the litter that's created and all the other impacts, to have, to be able to come down on day one and experience the aggregation and come down on day 12, you know, because they're pretty much after a couple of weeks, they're usually done and dusted and still be able to see these piles, these mounds, as they call them, of crabs or careering over each other is really special and not everyone can come on day one you know it's not like we can say right everyone who wants to look at them come down day one to day four and you get to go snorkeling and diving and watching from the pier and then we'll let the crab harvesters come because it doesn't matter everyone's seen them it doesn't work that way mm-hmm. and what we've found is that it's a very small number of people even though it feels like a lot it's only about a couple of hundred people that harvested the crabs this year most of them are one-time fishers. They're not actually regular fishers. They don't have regular fishing licenses. They buy just a two or three-day license. Sometimes it's just an opportunistic, oh, a bit of something different, day out with the family. Yeah, we might eat them, but we might make them into soup. Or a lot of them said, oh, we tried them, we not really into them, but it was fun. We might do it again. And it seems to be just... Why are we giving a very small group of people who are not really that bothered one way or the other, to be honest, a free reign when there's thousands of people that support the other side of it, the the event, the long-standing event, and and the cultural practice of observing nature and enjoying it. Mm. So that's what we're sort of fighting for, and we're asking for a no-take season that covers that And unfortunately, I didn't record the end of this as well, so before playing that last clip, I'd hit stop on my recorder, and uh, and so that, the summary, um, my 
my thank you to the SLF community, my thank you to Melbourne for being uh, the, the host city to Climactic in its first four years. Uh, it was not recorded except for on the video. In fact, I'm going to grab that now. <laughs> so you can actually hear what was said on the live stream. I just want to quickly say a couple just final things. Yeah, I'm going to be soppy and have some background music to it. I want to thank the people who put on the Sustainable Living Festival year after year. I want to thank Giselle Wilkinson, who helped get this thing off the ground 21 years ago. I recently had the pleasure of being on a panel with her and I didn't realize it was her. Um, but the... the the thing she's made in the Sustainable Living Festival is like it's Christmas for the sustainability community. It's where we can meet each other. Um, people, I, I've seen them, you know, at, at SLF 2019, it was like, hey, hey, old friend, here's my new kid, and here's my other kid who's now at high school, and it's just a wonderful coming together of this community. And I want to thank Giselle, I want to thank Luke Taylor for putting it on year after year on a budget that's you know, the smell of an oily rag. People like Sarah McDonald, who have been amazing. Like, who, who, I only did the Sustainable Living Festival in 2019 because she found the podcast and she approached me. And I would never have thought I would have been ready to do a live event. And here we are. Um, thank you so much, the Sustainable Living Festival. Thank you to all of you who are watching, who are listening, who are listening to this later. Um, climactic means something. Um... And until very recently, I kind of thought it just meant something to me. It means a lot to me, but you've heard them. There's a lot of people now on the Climactic Collective. We are together a bigger and louder voice than we would otherwise be. That's just so exciting and empowering. And um, it only happens when there's people like you who get behind it, who support it, who listen, who tell us when we can improve, and who say, hey, that was all right, keep doing that. It means so much to podcasters, you have no idea. It's uh, largely a pursuit where the doing of it looks like this. You're in front of your computer, it's dark outside, and your loved ones are down the hall thinking, when, is, when are they going to be done? It means a lot when, uh, when that effort does get uh, recognized, and it doesn't have to be you know, flowery, not asking for any awards or plaudits, just um, knowing that there's real people on the end of the download numbers, and that means a lot. Uh, there's so many other people I could thank. Um, I'm not going to let it spill out way too big. It's just to say that um, in 30 days, I'm leaving Australia. I'm moving home to New Zealand. Um, thank you so much to every single one of you who I've met in this place and who you've become my, my friends, my family, my community. I found myself in Melbourne. I changed as a person really fundamentally. And um, that was only because of all of you. Thank you all so very, very much. And go well, stay safe. The Climactic Collective. Too hokey? All right, I'm stopping it there. Thank you all so much. Have a good night. Bye. This show is produced by Here Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.